This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Abortion is a common procedure. Three out of 10 pregnancies and six out of 10 unintended pregnancies end with an induced abortion. Overall, about one in four women in the United States will have an abortion by the time they're 45 years old. The U.S. Supreme Court's June 2022 ruling to overturn Roe v. Wade has shifted the legal battle over abortion to the states, resulting in some states prohibiting abortion and others moving to safeguard it. The topic for today's podcast is abortion and what the primary care provider should know. Our guest is Dr. Regan Tyler from the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Regan, thank you for tackling this uh, controversial topic with us today. Thanks so much for having me. Well, with the latest Supreme Court ruling, what is the current status of women who choose to receive an abortion? There's massive state-to-state variation in access to care for women across the United States. And we're seeing everything from complete abortion bans to states that are reinforcing or or passing constitutional amendments and expanding rights to Medicaid-sponsored elective abortion in their states. Most states are falling somewhere in between the extremes, with many states enacting some form of a ban. What we're seeing is that people really need to consult with attorneys in their own state, familiar with the legislative environment on the ground before making any decisions about providing their care. Okay. In the states that are allowing access for abortion, do they all have waiting periods? You know, again, really variable. Some states do have waiting periods. Some states have scripted information that needs to be given to the patient prior to scheduling appointments. Some states have ultrasound recommendations and again, really variable state to state. Some states like Minnesota have peeled back some of those requirements for waiting periods in light of the recent Supreme Court decision. And then of course, many states have have made them stricter. Mm -hmm. Is it known when most of the abortions take place? Is it the majority in the first trimester? Yes, the majority are early first trimester, nine weeks and less, and certainly with access to early medication abortion, that number for the average has been creeping down as patients get access to earlier interventions. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, with all the recent legislation, what's the current status on the management of a woman who has a miscarriage? It has become exceedingly difficult in many states to provide care for patients who are undergoing miscarriage. In addition to that, many of the tools and medications used to manage miscarriage are also overlapping with tools used for induced abortion, including surgical management by DNC and medication management with mifepristone and mesoprostol. So you can imagine that there are gray zones in management of miscarriage. So patient may be bleeding heavily and have a gestational sac and have an embryo that still has a heartbeat, but in the opinion of the consulting physician, the OBGYN or emergency physician, this is a life-threatening hemorrhage for the mother. Mm -hmm. And management in those scenarios in states with a ban on abortion is exceedingly difficult and contentious. 
we think will lead to some maternal morbidity and mortality that is unwarranted. I've heard reports, and in some cases already, many physicians are uncertain when they can provide care for miscarriage, and that, that creates risk for the mother. Yeah, absolutely. And then if, if you add in the layers of additional care providers who need to participate to provide adequate miscarriage care, you're talking about nurses in clinics and in hospitals, and you're talking about pharmacists in the outpatient setting who need to have faith that that diagnosis of miscarriage is correct, done in good faith, and that dispensing medications or participating in a procedure will not be breaking the law in a state with an abortion ban. How about emergency contraception? Is, is that considered an abortion? Emergency contraception is not an abortion. All the methods in use act to prevent fertilization. It's highly effective. And specifically for the primary care audience, it's helpful to be familiar with the details of emergency contraception that's available, the sort of three to five day window for use, and the fact that intrauterine devices are the most effective method of emergency contraception. How do you determine when a pregnancy represents a risk to the life of the mother? That must be rather difficult at times. That's one of the most difficult questions to answer especially in some states that have, have laws that allow abortion in the setting of a risk to the life of the mother. If we start with the very basics, every pregnancy poses some risk to the life of the mother. We have a 30 per 100,000 maternal mortality rate in the United States, which is the highest in developed nations. So it's rarely clear cut. How much risk is acceptable risk? Is the baseline risk acceptable? is the increased risk that you see in cases of ectopic pregnancies acceptable to some people. Many people would describe as life-threatening conditions. And then there are things in between. For example, if a patient in early pregnancy is diagnosed with a breast cancer that's estrogen progesterone receptor positive, and she's faced with the choice of treating her breast cancer effectively and early or maintaining a pregnancy and large amounts of estrogen and progesterone in her blood, that is difficult. So in a state that allows interventions for the life of the mother, how lethal does that condition have to be before we make the decision that an intervention is okay? And these shades of gray are where people are really relying on their local attorneys to decide, can we move forward in that case with surgery? Can we move forward with chemotherapy? And is abortion necessary to preserve and allow the treatment of that mother? Well, just like a nurse and a clinical assistant, we almost now have to have an attorney on our healthcare team. We really do uh, in many states. Other examples that are in the news lately and very real for us every day as OBGYNs are preterm premature rupture of membranes. So patients whose water breaks anywhere between 15 and 24 weeks gestation is a, is a common complication of pregnancy. We know very early on, less than 20 weeks, the chance of survival of that baby is minimal and the chance of intact survival without some sort of long-term health sequelae is next to zero. We also know that maintaining that pregnancy can result in a live birth, but it can also result in maternal sepsis, pelvic abscesses, need for surgery and loss of fertility for the mother. According to ACOG, our professional society, offering induction of labor in the setting of pre-viable preterm rupture of membranes should be standard of care. 
But according to abortion law in many parts of the country, that is now not an option available to women who are given only the option of expectant management. So these things become very complex very quickly. In the past, the traditional method of pregnancy termination has been surgical, but that's really been changing. Can you elaborate on this shift from surgical to medical abortions? Yeah, and that's been about a two-decade shift with increasing evidence in the safety and efficacy of medication management of abortion, largely with mifepristone as a pre-medication and then mesoprostol to induce evacuation of the uterus. This is approved by the FDA up to 10 weeks gestation, is exceedingly safe, and can be 95 to 100% effective in its use. It's also recommended by the World Health Organization up to 84 days of gestation using a slightly modified regimen. Mm -hmm. We have a fair amount of evidence that this is a very safe intervention for most patients. It's highly effective and the patients are capable of managing a medication abortion at home on their own without significant help from clinicians actually. Are there instances when a surgical procedure is still preferred? Yeah, there are. Like anything in medicine these days, it can be a very preference sensitive decision. So patients having access to both the surgical procedure or DNC with varying levels of anesthesia, analgesia, sedation is a satisfier for patients, but medically patients, especially who are anticoagulated or have bleeding disorders, have a strong contraindication to medical abortion. The other major contraindication is inability to follow up or lack of transportation to a healthcare facility because we give these medications and in 24 to 36 hours after administration of the mifepristone, we induce bleeding and we induce passage of tissue. If the patient has uncontrolled bleeding, which is rare, but does happen, or if she has a bleeding disorder that requires close follow-up for her. Talk a little bit about the medications used for a therapeutic abortion. Sure. Mifepristone, also known as RU486, has been around for a long time now. The original use was for medication abortion with a dose of 600 milligrams. Over the years, it was found that an evidence-based regimen of 200 milligrams of mifepristone followed in 24 hours by mesoprostol administration is highly effective and very safe for inducing abortion. Mesoprostol being the second component is a prostaglandin. Mifepristone is a progesterone receptor antagonist. The combination thereof, again, highly effective for inducing abortion. Uh, Regan, anything else that you wanted to add about that? You know, things to think about when considering surgical versus medication abortion also include the patient's ability to follow instructions. Patients who are on chronic higher dose corticosteroid regimens are not good candidates for medication abortion because you can antagonize the corticosteroid receptor with mifepristone and precipitate an Addisonian crisis. So we do consider that to be a contraindication to medication abortion. And then there are patients who really want an IUD insertion at the time of their abortion, and it's convenient for them to do a surgical procedure. So that's preference sensitive as well. Mm -hmm. How safe are the medications? Is there, are there significant risks to the woman with these? They're exceedingly safe, and they're even safe with those very few exceptions being bleeding disorders, chronic corticosteroid use. They're even safe for patients to manage completely on their own according to recent literature. So the, the safety of 
abortion in general and medication abortion specifically is always safer than carrying a pregnancy, which is something uh, that's really important in counseling patients who have any sort of medical condition. Yes, if you have a bleeding disorder or coagulation disorder or other medical comorbidities, those may increase your risk at the time of a medical or surgical abortion, but that risk generally is significantly less than that of carrying a pregnancy to the third trimester. Mm -hmm. I would imagine that the decision to proceed with an abortion and the procedure itself could have a major effect on a woman's emotional health. Has that been looked at? I'm sure it has. It has been looked at in several studies, and the most common emotional response to abortion in women is a relief. And there's no increased incidence known of depressive disorders or any other psychiatric illnesses with abortion care. Okay. After a woman has had an abortion, how soon can she theoretically get pregnant again? Yeah, really important to let them know that within 7 to 14 days, they can ovulate again after completion of an abortion. It's most commonly two to three weeks, but having that discussion during the abortion counseling about when we are going to initiate contraception and which contraception is best for that patient is absolutely critical part of the care because it can happen so quickly. And people tend to be surprised. Mm -hmm. You say you are fertile again in as few as eight days. All right. And does an abortion have any potential to affect the future pregnancy potential? Very minimal impact, certainly no known impact after a medication abortion on one's ability to carry a pregnancy after that. Minimal risk with a DNC or surgical abortion that scarring of the endometrial lining can lead to Asherman syndrome and infertility. But again, very, very small risk. So in general, the procedure is safe and does not impact future reproductive potential. You mentioned contraceptives. What contraceptives could be considered for a woman after an abortion and when should they be started? Almost any contraceptive method is appropriate immediately after abortion. For example, with a surgical abortion, IUD insertion at the end of the procedure is standard of care for a person who wants to initiate that. We always counsel patients, any patient, toward long-acting reversible contraceptive methods because they're more effective and they're more effective over time. They're more likely to be continued and used appropriately to maintain that high effectiveness of 99% or greater in pregnancy prevention. Examples would be the intrauterine devices, of which there are several on the market, and the Nexplanon implant, the progesterone implant. Any of those can start immediately after completion of the procedure or the medication abortion. There are a lot of tools to support primary care providers and OBGYNs in picking the right contraceptive. The CDC has some great reference tools on the website. The USMEC or the Medical Eligibility for Contraception is critical to look at to decide what is the safest method for your patient. And then the US Selected Practice Recommendations is another document that can help you determine at what point should you initiate contraception and do you need a backup method in there when you start a new method. Well, Regan, could you kind of summarize our discussion by maybe giving us two or three important key points regarding abortion? The first point around the legislative changes is that this is an incredibly dynamic environment for reproductive health throughout our country. 
and anyone who is providing reproductive health care needs to be aware of their state-specific laws and any, any recent court judgments around those laws and consult with attorneys. There's no general advice that can be given to a national audience in the United States around legislative mm-hmm. action. It's got to be state-specific. And then uh, finally, in a time of decreasing access to reproductive health care, it's really important for every physician encountering a patient of reproductive age to assess need for contraception at every clinical encounter. And that includes men, that includes women, that includes transgender patients. Every patient at every encounter should be assessed for their need for contraception. Well, we've been discussing the topic of abortion with Dr. Regan Tyler from the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the Mayo Clinic. Regan, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us today. Thank you. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week.